0: Looking at our world from a theological perspective, this is the Theology Central Podcast, making Theology Central. Welcome, everyone. It is Saturday, December the 3rd, 2022. It is currently 5.22 p.m. Central time, and I'm coming to you live from the Theology Central studio located right here in Abilene, Texas. Thank you so much for tuning in for, I guess, do we call this a late afternoon podcast, early evening podcast? I guess it really depends in which time zone you live. But when, where, whenever you hear this, wherever you hear this, however you may be listening to this, thank you so much for tuning in. I hope this proves to be a worthwhile use of your time, all right? Now, if you've been with us, you know this week. we This is week one of what will be basically a seven-week study of the subject of fear. We are utilizing a modified thematic method of Bible study to study the subject of fear. So this week you were supposed to come up with six questions about fear that you were going to ask basically the scriptures, and then you were going to start searching the scriptures to answer those questions. Not five, not seven, but six questions, six questions about fear. That's what you were supposed to come up with. Hopefully, you have already come up with those questions and you've started working on the scriptures to find your answer. Please, if you have any problems, difficulty, or questions in regards to this modified thematic method or just any any difficulties you're finding, email me newsif atyahoo.com, newsif at yahoo.com. And I will do everything I can to assist you. Even if that means turning on the microphone five, six, seven times and doing seven hours of teaching, I will do that. Whatever we can do to help you have a biblical understanding of the subject of fear, a biblical, not, and I want to make sure we say a biblical understanding, not a, and now listen to what I'm going to say, a Christian understanding, because I I know this comes as a shock, but sometimes the so-called Christian understanding, and when I say Christian, I'm just talking Christianity at large, Christianity in general, right? You could call it churchianity if you want, but just just average everyday Christian thinking, sometimes average everyday Christian thinking on so many doctrines, theological issues, church history, so many subjects, it's not biblical in any way, shape, or form, and I know that's hard to believe, but it's just the facts. It's just the truth. So, the subject of fear, you can ask lots of Christians about it. They have lots of thoughts, lots of opinions, but is it biblical? Hopefully by the time when you're done with this seven and this seven weeks of study, you understand the subject of fear in the most biblical way possible. And maybe it will challenge some of your firmly held ideas that you developed, not so much from scripture, but from, well, Christianity or churchianity or whatever name you would like to give it. So I really, really hope it will be beneficial, but I want to do anything I can to help you. So email me. If you did come up with your six questions, please email them to me. Newsif at yahoo.com. Newsif at yahoo.com. We are going to compile a PDF where we put, uh, uh, well, probably every, probably all the ones I receive, uh, just a list of all the questions. We're not, we're going to leave your name off of it. Your name won't be in it. It'll just be your questions. And here's the reason why, because then I can post that PDF and people can go, oh, wow, I never thought of that question about fear. I never thought about that question about fear. And then I may just choose random questions at times from that list to try to answer over the next seven weeks. In other words, to see what I can do, or at least try to offer my thoughts in regards to some of those questions. But you're supposed to come up with the questions and search the scriptures to see if you can find an answer some of your questions, you won't find a scriptural answer because the scripture doesn't always answer our every our every curiosity, everything we ever want to know. It, it doesn't always answer that, and which is good to know because then you know the Bible doesn't really give an answer to your particular question. So if someone comes along and tries to claim the Bible does give an answer, you'll be like, nope, I've searched the whole Bible on the subject of fear. It's not there. But yes, this is this is the, it's Saturday, so we're fast approaching the end of week one of our Bible study. And for this week, yes, you've been working on the thematic method. You've come up with your six questions, you're working on that. You can contact me anytime, but I pleaded, I begged. Okay. Maybe, maybe you didn't feel like I was pleading and begging enough. In my mind, I was pleading and begging. I didn't offer to pay you, but I was coming close. I, I, I asked strongly, is that a more accurate way of describing it? For everyone participating in the next seven weeks in our study on the subject of fear, that week one, the text was Psalm 33, really verses uh, 6 to 22, Psalm 33 verses 6 through 22 really was the text. I just told you to read the chapter over and 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 over again. to live with it, to breathe it in, to feed upon it. And I believe strongly, that a lot of times when I try to get people, I, I I think this is just a fact. You you can tell me if you disagree, and I talked about this earlier in the afternoon in a in a podcast episode that I ended up deleting. But um I, I talked about this and I really I am really curious about this, and I'm 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 really suspicious about this. Look, here's how I view it. I believe the Bible obviously is the inspired and perfect word of God, right? I mean, you believe that as well if you claim to be a Christian. It's the word of God, right? It's infallible. It's perfect. But I believe it's a treasure. It's a great treasure. And we are to treasure it above everything else. We're to desire God's word more than gold and silver, more than food. We are to love it, cherish it, treasure it. But when I think of treasure, here's what I know. Treasure is rarely just, you know, placed somewhere on the top of the ground with a spotlight and blaring siren saying, here is the treasure. Treasure is typically buried. It's hidden. You have to search for it. And I believe the Bible is a treasure, but to really, to really gain benefit from it, to really discover the treasure that it is, it requires you to dig. It requires you to search. So my concern is, or my suspicion, my curiosity is, is that I feel that most Christians, when they get ready to study a text and say someone is helping them or they're involved in a Bible study, and just like you hear me say over and over in the Bible study exercise, okay, so like I did this week, Psalm 33, live with it, read it over and over and over and over, breathe it in, feed upon it, just read it over and over. I think a lot of people hear that and it's almost like they treat those words like, that's just hyperbole, that's over dramatic. that's just ridiculous. And they read it once or twice, I'm like, I got it, I'm good, I got it. I've got look I read it 3 times. What more do you want from me? But I feel when you do that you're robbing yourself. You're missing out on the treasure. It's like it's like you're walking you're walking over where the treasure is buried. You're just walking back. You may pace across it 2 or 3 times, but the treasure is below. And I believe in scripture that when whenever like this week it's Psalm 33. Next week, it'll be a different scripture. Dealing with fear, but it'll be a different passage of scripture. Whenever we are looking at these scriptures, I really hope you understand that I'm not just using hyperbole or being over dramatic when I ask you to read it and read it and read it and to breathe it in. That's where you really find the treasure. That's really where you benefit. I know I'm taking an extended amount of time here to do this, but I think it's something, it's Saturday, we're the end of the week. This is a good time to have this conversation. How much time did you really spend in Psalm 33 this week? I mean, I need you to be just brutally honest with yourself. How many times did you even read it? And when you read it, did you just like, okay, the end. All right. Okay, I got it. I got it. I've read it three times. What more does he want? Don't. It's not even about me. It's for you. You had had a week to spend time in Psalm 33. Next week, we'll be moving on to a different passage. Starting tomorrow, we'll be on to a different passage. Did you you really drink in Psalm 33? Look, scripture, let me state it this way. Bible study, I mean, this whole podcast series, Bible study exercise. The goal is to try to get you involved in actually doing it. I've said it a million times. Some of you know what I'm getting ready to say. Bible study is 99.9% observation. It's just observing what's in the text, but it's good observation. You can't observe the text unless you're living in it. You're living with it. You're drinking it in. You're observing it over and over and over and over and over and over. And every time you read it, Every time you spend time with it, you're digging a little deeper, and then you begin to see maybe what you couldn't see because you were pacing on the surface and not digging below and seeing what's really there. All right, so please, when for the next, well, not just the next seven weeks, all of 2023, all of 2023, when we do, we start, you know, a whole new year of Bible study exercises, right? Trying to do a, a new Bible study exercise every week. I hope you just understand this important principle of living in the text, living in the text, okay? And I know some of you are like, just get to the point. Well, right now, that's the point I want to make. Live with it. So, all right, so you, do you have that down? So the thematic method, I hope you're already working on it. You got your six questions. You're looking for answers. I hope you've spent the week in Psalm 33, living it, drinking it. Typically, now this is not a good indicator. But sometimes it is at least a hint. If the listeners, if the participants in the Bible study are really living in the text, I mean, they're just reading it and reading it and reading it. Typically, my email inbox begins to fill up with questions and observations. When my email inbox doesn't fill up, it always makes me concerned, curious, Suspicious. I hope you spent some time in Psalm 33. If not, well, it's still Saturday. You've got time. Spend some time this evening reading it. If you need to get uh, an, uh, the audio version, you can use the Bible app, the U version Bible app. You can use the Blue Letter Bible, and uh, you can listen to it be read to you over and over and over. The Blue Letter, uh, the Blue Letter Bible app. You can set it to read it to uh, read the chapter seven times to you. So whatever you need to do, please live in it. Because here's the reason I'm I'm so exercised about that this week. We're trying to study fear for the next seven weeks, right? And I believe inadvertently, like I, I, I would, if you would have asked me at the beginning of the week, how important is Psalm 33? Look, I'm just going to be honest with you. When I saw that the curriculum gave us Psalm 33 to kick off seven weeks studying fear, I'm going to be, I'm just going to be honest with you. I was a little underwhelmed. I was like... Psalm 33? Really? Why? Like, I, I didn't quite understand why it was Psalm 33. And in fact, I, I, I would have been tempted to skip it, but that's why I love using the curriculum or whatever, because then I'm forced, I'm forced to study and look into something that I may be tempted to just overlook myself. So I, I was like, ah, Psalm 33, but I knew, I knew that that's the text. I got to live in it. I got to live in it. So I began to read Psalm 33 over and over and over. And all of a sudden, it was like the lights came on. Boom. And the lights didn't come on because of something supernatural or something mystical, just because I was observing the text. And all of a sudden, I realized wait a minute. This chapter, I believe, gives us the prerequisite. The requirements for us to fear God. Psalm 33, let's start with the key verse this week. Psalm 33, verse 8. Let all the earth fear the Lord. Let all the inhabitants of the world stand in awe of him. Let all the earth fear the Lord. Let all the inhabitants of the world stand in awe of him. Now, there's many things I've already said this week about that verse. I'm not going to say them right now for time's sake because my intro went long. But that that intro is very important to what I want to establish here. Okay, so just listen. When I looked at that, I'm like, wow. Okay, so the whole world fears the Lord and everyone's standing in awe of him. And I asked the question, what would that look like? And then what does that mean for me? Okay, we've talked about all of that. But then I started thinking about, you know, it's so easy. And I've heard millions of sermons. Fear God. It's the beginning of wisdom. It's the beginning of knowledge. Here are the, here, and and then it almost tells you like what the fear of God looks like. But they don't really tell you how to fear God. It's just basically you must fear God. And if you fear God, then this will be the results. You'll be obedient to scripture, And it'll just give you like three or four supposed signs to prove that you fear God. They don't really tell you how to do it. They just tell you, you must do it. You must do it so that you can have knowledge. You must do it so that you can have wisdom. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, the beginning of knowledge. So fear God. And if you do fear God, you will hate evil. You will be obedient. They'll give you three or four signs. And then that's the end of the sermon. But I I don't, I've never been comfortable with that because what does it mean just to tell me fear God? So I I would go, what am I supposed to do to fear God? How am I supposed to fear God? I mean, I know I'm supposed to, but how do I just make that? Okay. All right. I close my eyes. Okay. Come on. Fear God. All right. All right. I'm trying. Fear God. Okay. I'm trying really hard. Oh man. Okay. All right. Slap myself a couple of times. Come on, fear God. You can do it. You can do it. You can, all right, right, throw some water on my face. You fear God. I know you're saying that's ridiculous, but I'm saying you're never really given exactly how it's supposed to happen. So the more I read Psalm 33, I'm like, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. I think this is giving me kind of the prerequisite. Think about university, right? Think about college. There are some classes you can't take because those classes require that you've taken the prerequisite right? You want to take this class about literature or about philosophy? Well, it requires that you take an introduction to philosophy, or it it requires you take an introduction to ancient Roman literature, whatever the case may be. You you always have these prerequisite courses. Well, fear God, that's the ultimate goal. That's our major, right? We want to fear God because that's the beginning of wisdom. That's the beginning of knowledge. That's where we want to get. But to get there, there there's some requirements. There is a foundation. And I believe Psalm 33 gives us those. And do you remember the three I've given you this week? Let's review them quickly. Look, Psalm 33, verse 8, that's the key verse. Let all the earth fear the Lord. Let all the inhabitants of the world stand in awe of him. All right, simple, straightforward. But how do we do that? Well, it's interesting that verse 8 finds itself uh, in the middle of th- uh, really three verses, you have verse 6, 7, and 9. And in the middle of 8 seems completely disjointed and disconnected from them because 6, 7, and 9 has one topic and 8 inter- inter- interrupts it. It's really interesting, the structure. But look at 6. By the word of the Lord were the heavens made and all the host of them by the breath of his mouth. Verse 7, he gathered the waters of the sea together as an heap. He layeth up the depth in storehouses. Verse 9, for he spake and it was done. He commanded and it stood fast. Verse 6, verse 7, and verse 9 are about creation, about God as creator. And then verse 8 has this thing, let everyone fear the Lord. And I was like, well, that's, that's an interesting structure. And then it hit me. The first prerequisite. You will not fear God until you acknowledge, you accept, and you believe that God is creator. When you reject God as creator, there will be no fear of God before your eyes. Because if you reject him as creator, then really you replace God with yourself. You become the one who determines meaning, purpose, reality, and morality. You determine everything. The rejection of God as creator, you will not fear him. The prerequisite to fear God, If you want to say, how do I get to fear God? Do you accept, acknowledge, and truly believe that God is creator? Look again, Psalm 33, verse 6. By the word of the Lord were the heavens made, and all the host of them by the breath of his mouth. Do you believe God created everything by speaking it into existence? That he spoke that which didn't exist, into existence. That shows his power, right? His omnipotence. All right. Verse eight, let all the, or verse seven, he gathered the waters of the sea together as in a heap. He layeth up the depth and storehouses. Verse nine, for he spake and it was done. He commanded and it stood fast. You, You look, you don't, you reject God as creator. You have no fear. So, prerequisite number one is we must acknowledge, accept, and believe God is creator, right? We got that? Okay. Um, requirement number two is found in verse 9, all right, or verse 10, right? 30, 33, 6, 7, and 9 gives us the first requirement, the first prerequisite to fear God. Verse 10 gives us the second The Lord bringeth the counsel of the, of the heathen to naught. He maketh the devices of the people of none effect. The second thing, if we're going to fear God, we must accept, we must acknowledge, and we must believe in God's sovereignty. His sovereignty is spoken here. He is sovereign over people. He is, listen, he is sovereign over the counsel of the heathen, and he is sovereign over the devices of the people. The people can come up with their counsel. They can come up with their devices. They can come up with their plans, but God is sovereign over all. If you reject God as creator, you will not fear God. And if you reject God's complete and total sovereignty you will take some of that sovereignty for yourself. And if you're taking sovereignty for yourself, there's no way you will have reverence and respect and awe for God, which is what we mean by the fear of the Lord in this context. So prerequisite number one, if you're going to fear God, you must acknowledge, accept, and believe that he is creator. You must acknowledge and accept and believe he is sovereign. I don't have time to go through everything there, all right? And then number three, the third prerequisite. The counsel of the Lord standeth forever, the thoughts of his heart to all generations. The third prerequisite is you must acknowledge, you must accept, and you must believe that God is supreme, his supremacy over everything, his sovereignty and his supremacy. Now, we made a, a distinction here because in this case, his supremacy goes in this way. His supremacy, God is supreme over uh, his counsel is supreme over everything else, and his thoughts are supreme. Meaning this, God's counsel, God's ways, God's thoughts, they are supreme. They cannot be changed. They cannot be thwarted. They cannot be overcome. So, three prerequisites to God, to fearing God. You must acknowledge, accept, and believe he is creator. Acknowledge, accept, and believe he is sovereign over the plans and the wills and devices of people and that you must accept, acknowledge, and believe that he is supreme, that his counsel, his thoughts, his heart, his desire, his will is supreme and that we cannot overcome it, we cannot stop it, we cannot ultimately withhold it. Those are the three. Okay, now that leaves us verses 12 to 22, verses 12 to 22. Now, there's a part of me that immediately wants to skip verse 12 and go right to trying to demonstrate and find the next prerequisite to fear God. That's what I want to do, but we have a slight interruption here. Because we have verse 12, which really, 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 really has to be dealt with. We've really got to deal with verse 12. We really have to deal with it, okay? And I hope, I I know I repeated those three, but I don't apologize for it. Because I feel like Psalm 33 is not getting the attention it needed this week. So I'm going to repeat myself as much as I need to to ensure that everyone walks away understanding how significant this is. We all know we're supposed to fear God. We all know it's the beginning of wisdom and knowledge. Well, how do you do it? Well, though I give you three prerequisites. I'm going to give you a fourth before this is over, but we got to deal with verse 12. All right? So here we go. Psalm 33, verse 12. Blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord and the people whom he hath chosen for his own Inheritance. Now, this is a very famous verse. You should look up sermons on this verse, and it would be interesting what you would hear. I cannot give you a percentage, but I know there will be many sermons that will be preached something like this. Typically here in the United States of America, I don't know how this shows up in other countries, but here in America, it it says this, listen, this nation will not be blessed if God is not the Lord. If we truly want to be blessed, then we God has to be the God of this nation. God has to be the Lord of this nation. And it's your responsibility and my responsibility to make him God, to make God the Lord of this nation. And how do we do that? And then typically it's about fighting some culture war, fighting same-sex marriage, or fighting this, or fighting this, and, and we're gonna stand against this, and we're gonna try to boycott this, and we're gonna we're gonna fight against this, we're gonna get people elected, and we're gonna vote the Democrats out, and we're gonna stand against critical race. And and we're going to make God the Lord of this nation, and then we will be blessed. In other words, they make it about something we're supposed to do, which is the most mind-boggling thing I've ever seen in my life, because Psalm 33, verse 12, has nothing to do with what we do. Psalm 33, verse 12, is about what God does, which fits perfectly with the verses that come before, right? The verses before identified God as creator, identified God as sovereign, and identified God as supreme. So why would verse 12 turn into what we do? It's not about what we do. It's about what God has done. And specifically, this verse has nothing to do with America. This is about Israel. Look at it carefully. Blessed is the nation whom God is the Lord and the people whom he hath chosen for his own inheritance. This nation whose God is the Lord it is the nation whom God has chosen for his own inheritance that is referring to Israel. This is a passage, not about what we, it's not a passage calling us to do something. It's a passage reminding Israel that God is the Lord. They are blessed because God had chosen them. He did not choose them because they were the more godly, wise, holy, strong, smart, intelligent, He chose them in spite of them being sinful, rebellious, a stiff-necked people, prone and turning to idolatry every time they turn around. But God made a promise. God made a covenant with them, and he will keep that promise and keep that covenant. I don't believe it's been taken from them and given to the church, but God will fulfill his promise to Israel in the future at some point in time because it's based off his sovereign election. And if we can't trust His sovereign election, then we can't trust anything. He chose them. Now, we may find a prerequisite to fear here. We may. I don't think it perfectly works. But uh, so I don't know if I'm going to use it. I may, I may just mention it, but this is a power. I just want to make sure you understand Psalm thirty three twelve 12 is not a sermon that you preach saying, Hey, everyone, blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord. Now we got to go do this, 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 and 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 this because if God is not the Lord of this nation, we're, we're going to cry. This is about Israel. And it's not about what the people could do, can do. It's God is the one who did it. He chose them. Here's how one commentary put it. And I think this is so beautifully written. Um, this is, oh, this is just a beautiful passage. So, uh, our beautiful commentary here. Uh, this comes from Cambridge Bible for Schools and Colleges, right? Listen carefully. From the nations, the psalmist turns to the chosen people. That's what he does. He's turning to the chosen people. The, the nations are mentioned in the previous section that we just read. Let all the earth fear fear God. He talks about the heathen. So the other nations are mentioned in the previous section, but verse 12 to 19, it's clearly about Israel. It's about Israel. So listen, Jehovah's care for Israel constitutes his special claim on their praise. Now listen carefully. Happy or blessed the nation, which is the particular object of the choice of, and care of the omniscient observer of men. They are blessed... Because they are the particular object of his choice and care, the omniscient observer of men. Now, that phrase, omniscient observer of men, oh, this is going to become key to finding our next prerequisite to fearing God. But in the meantime, we just got to fix 12 here. We got to fix this verse because it's been abused in too many sermons. Blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord is not because the nation made him Lord It's because God chose the people. God chose them. He made a covenant with them. God, think about this way. God, in a sense, is my Lord as a person, not because of what I did, not because of what I do. He is God and Lord because he chose me before the foundations of the world. He elected me. Then he and and his sovereign will at at the appropriate time use the effectual call to draw me to him, to save me. When when Christians say, we have to make him the Lord. No, no, he is the Lord because he chose me, purchased me, bought me for himself. I belong to him because he bought me. I can't make him Lord. If I'm making him Lord, then guess what? then I'm the Lord because I'm doing the making, right? No, he is my Lord. He is my God. He is my Lord because he sovereignly elected and chose me. This nation is Israel and God chose them. That's why they are blessed. I don't know how this this passage gets turned into a sermon about, hey, hey, we're not going to be blessed unless God is the Lord of this nation. And so we need to do, we got to, we got to do this. We got to fight for this. We got to fight for this. We got to, what are you talking about? This is for Israel. It's not for us. Israel was chosen by God. God made a covenant with Israel. That's who this is about. We we can't just, it's just weird how people handle scripture, but this is, this is a, an abomination. Now, here's the thing. I could take this verse and could say, okay, this is about Israel, no question. It's about God choosing them, no question. All of those are facts, they're biblical, it's grounded in truth. And I could say, well, wait a minute, I could apply this some way to me, right? I could try to do this, and I just don't think, think this works, but listen to me. I could say, well, a prerequisite to truly fearing God is to acknowledge, accept, and believe in God's divine election. Now, this would fit the previous verses, right? This would fit everything. Hey, let the whole earth fear God, Psalm 33, 8. Well, how does the whole earth fear God? Verse 6 and 7, we have to accept, acknowledge, and believe him as creator. Verse uh, 10, we have to accept, believe, uh, uh, we have to accept, acknowledge, and believe his sovereignty because he's sovereign over the uh, the counsel of the heathen and over the devices of people. And then number three, we have to see that he, his counsel, his thoughts are supreme. The supremacy of God's counsel and thoughts, we have to acknowledge, accept, and believe it, verse 11. And then verse 12 goes to his sovereign choice. So there's a part of me that wants to say, hey guys, if you, you cannot fear God until you accept Acknowledge and believe in God's divine election. I want to say that. It fits fits the text. It fits the context. But here's where I'm a little apprehensive. I'm a little apprehensive. Because I have known people. who don't believe in the doctrine of sovereign divine election they reject it they hold to a more arminian view a kind of a semi pelagian pelagian view of salvation they really ultimately undermine and destroy the doctrine of god's sovereign election they may try to give some kind of lip service to it but when you really dig into their theology they abandon that that teaching but i don't think i would say they don't fear god So I don't know if that's fair to say if someone rejects divine election, they don't fear God. I don't think that's fair. So to say that it's a prerequisite, I don't know. I think we could ask ourselves this question. How does the belief in God's sovereign election of Israel, because that's the actual context here, and the belief in God's sovereign election of you, how does that impact you Truly reverence, respecting, and standing in awe of God. Because the right kind of fear here is respect, reverence, and standing in awe. Now, I don't know if you can truly stand in awe of God until you realize God sovereignly chose you. God saved you. You had nothing to do with it. You didn't make a decision for Jesus because you were smarter or because you were willing to be honest or, or, or whatever motivation you think that came from you to decide to follow Christ. I think when you truly see that you are helpless, you were dead, you did nothing, but God chose you not because you're smart, because you're godly or because you will be, but because he sovereignly chose you before the foundations of the earth. I don't know. I think that creates a true reverence and respect and standing in awe of God. So maybe it is a prerequisite. And and, and But I would just ask you, b- belief in the fact that God sovereignly chose a nation, Israel, and then he is going to keep his covenant with them in spite of their, of their failures, does that give you a greater sense of reverence, respect, and awe of God? And when you consider divine election as it applies to us, to you as a believer— Does that give you a greater sense of reverence, respect, and awe of God? I'm going to leave it as a question instead of being dogmatic about it because I don't want to say that those who reject, I don't want to say that those who don't believe, like they believe Israel's been set aside, like the all millennial, they believe Israel's been set aside, and those who reject sovereign election in us, I don't want to say that they don't fear God. But I am curious how those teachings about God's sovereign election of Israel and sovereign election of us, do you believe it creates a greater sense of reverence, respect, and awe of God? I think in some ways it has to. I think in some ways it has to. But the main thing that we cannot do with Psalm 33, 12, is turn that blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord into some kind of, you know, get out and vote, you know, stand against the woke crowd. It, it's not that. It's It's like, Blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord. And how does God, How does a nation find God as their Lord? Not what they do, but what God did. How do, how do I find myself having God as my Lord? Not because of what I do, because of what he did before the foundations of the earth. And eternity passed when he sovereignly chose me. That gives me greater re- reverence, respect, and awe. I'm going to say in some ways, divine election that that doctrine is is I'm gonna I'm gonna kind of go with somewhat it's a prerequisite to fearing God. We have to acknowledge, accept and believe in divine election as almost a prerequisite to truly having respect, reverence and awe for God I, I I'm gonna le- I'm leaning in that direction. I won't be dogmatic but I think it's an important one. I think it's an important aspect of it. All right. Now, are you ready to look at the rest? All right. Here we go. I know we've done a lot. Of, I know we've done a lot of review. I know. Just stay with me here. Just stay with me. Okay. All right. Here we go. I'm going to read the next couple of verses, and I'm going to emphasize specific words. And I really want you to see if you can catch on to this. Are you ready? Here we go. Psalm 33. Verse 13, Look, notice this. The Lord looketh from heaven. Note the word looketh, circle it. He beholdeth, circle beholdeth, all the sons of men, verse 14, from the place of his habitation, he looketh upon all the inhabitants of the earth. He fashioned their hearts alike. He considereth all their works. Please note, he beholds, he looks, he considers, he be, he looks, he beholds, he considers, and he looks and he beholds and he considers everything. He considers the person and he considers their, their works. Now, when it says he looks, understand it's referring to God in a way that we can understand, we can grasp. But when it says he looks and it beholds, it is referring to God's absolute, complete knowledge, his omniscience, God's omniscience. And if we look up the definition of omniscience, omniscience is the state of knowing everything, the notion of divine omniscience or omniscient. God is omniscient. It is his divine omniscience that we are beholding here. We are seeing here. We are being told about in Psalm 33. We are being told God, in a sense, he looks. He, and, and just to understand, he doesn't have to look to see. He already knows. He His knowledge is complete before the creation of everything. He's omniscient. It is his divine omniscience. God's omniscience. Now, this is important. I believe this is a prerequisite to fearing God. If we're truly going to have reverence and respect and awe for him, we have to accept, we have to acknowledge, and we have to believe that God is omniscient. We have to believe in God's omniscience. We have to. If we reject God's omniscience, we replace his all-knowing, with the weird idea that we are all-knowing. Now, we would never say that, but we act like we're all-knowing. We think we know everything about everyone, about everything. We think we're right. It leads to arrogance and pride. But when you realize, wait, God is omniscient. I am not. God has an omniscience that I, I, I don't have anything close to that. Then guess what? That should humble us. So what are the prerequisites? To fearing God, an acceptance, an acknowledgement, and a belief in him as creator. And number two, an acceptance, an acknowledgement, and a belief in his sovereignty. Number three, an acceptance, an acknowledgement, and a belief in his supremacy, the supremacy of his counsel, the supremacy of his thoughts, the supremacy of what he desires. And next, there is at least a connection, I believe, in fearing God with an acceptance, an acknowledgement, and a belief in God's sovereign election of Israel and God's divine election of us. That should lead to reverence and respect and awe. And next, the, the prerequisite to fear God is an acceptance, an acknowledgement, and a belief that God is omniscient or in God's omniscience. When we see God as all-knowing, That has to give us a sense of reverence, a sense of respect, a sense of of awe. I don't know if you've ever been in the presence of someone who has like a, a genius IQ. Someone who just knows everything about a subject. I mean, they know it inside and out. And you just stand there kind of like, how do you know all of this? There's a little bit of reverence. There's almost an awe. Imagine standing before a God who knows everything, who has never learned anything, who has always known everything. We cannot even comprehend omniscience. We cannot even begin to even, we have a hard enough time saying the word, or at least I did did earlier today. We, 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 We have issues with even comprehending it. Now, this brings us to 16, 17, 18, and 19. Up to this point, it's very simple, very straightforward. And again, just please note, let me go to verse 13. The Lord looketh from uh, from heaven. He beholdeth all the sons of men. From the place of his habitation, he looketh upon all the inhabitants of the earth. He fashioned their hearts alike. He considereth all their works. It's that he is, he sees this. He sees everything. He knows everything. He's aware of everything. And when you know that God sees everything about you, knows everything about you, knows your heart, your thoughts, your words, your deeds, then you are confronted with his omniscience, which should bring about a godly fear of reverence, respect, and awe. All of that seems pretty straightforward, but then verse 16, 17, 18, and 19 leaves me a little bit perplexed. All right, so here we go. Verse 16, there is no king saved by the multitude of an host. A mighty man is not delivered by much strength. An horse is a vain thing for safety. Neither shall he deliver any by his great strength. Now, 16 and 17 seems to emphasize the weakness of man, the inability of man, that, there, that we are limited in what we can ultimately accomplish. Now, you could say, well, well, men by their strength have done this or done this or done that, but it seems to be somehow saying there's a limitation to this. I'm, I'm just going to look up some commentaries here. Just to see what they how they how they decide to handle this. All right. We're gonna go to let's see, Psalm thirty-three fourteen. 14. This is him beholding everything, his omniscience. All right. And then uh, then we're, we're gonna get to 16. All right. Um okay, here we go. Um yeah, it... This is interesting. One commentary. Um, A king is not saved by the numerous host or by greatness of power, including other forces besides forces of soldiers. Uh, The victory of battle standeth not in the multitude of a host, but strength that comes from heaven. Uh, And, okay, and then it says, the article, however, okay. um, Yeah, they, they don't go here. Um, that's not very much help okay um, I'll read uh, Matthew Henry's all the motions and operations of the souls of men which no mortals know but themselves God knows better than they do their hearts, as well as their time, are all in his hands. He formed the spirit of each man with him. All the powers of the creature depend upon him and are of no account and are of no avail at all without him. What they, what the commentaries seem to be going is in this direction, that what, what is being said here is that all of your strength, all of your power, all of your weapons only will accomplish what God lets them accomplish. In and of yourself, in and of yourself, you are totally powerless. You are helpless because anything you accomplish is not on your account. It's because of God's work. God is the one in control. So, is it possible? Stay with me. I'm I'm gonna I'm gonna throw this idea out there. Oh, see, I I told man, I I knew I I I knew. Look. See, the more I read Psalm 33, see, this is why I spent 19 minutes in my introduction that you probably thought was redundant and you got bored with. But I I just want you to see, there's so much here in Psalm 33 that I'm telling you, my email, I should have had 100 emails going, whoa. Whoa whoa what this what is this psalm saying I am utterly blown away by this psalm this is the most amazing thing I have ever read but when you when I, when I hear silence and regard I, I just know something is up I know something is up we've got to see this is so powerful so beautiful all right so let's put our thinking caps on you ready all right let's put our thinking caps on okay I know what I've no I know up to have no I've done a lot of review but that's okay that's okay all right here we go I, I, I'm kicking myself in some ways. Like I should have done this a little different, but there's another part of me says, "I, I think I've done this just right. You, you can tell me if you disagree. All right, here we go. All right. Thinking caps on. All right. The ultimate goal is that we are to fear God. That's what we all, that's what we all must seek. That's all what we must desire because that's the beginning of wisdom. That's the beginning of knowledge. We'll have no wisdom. We have no knowledge until we fear God. That's what we have to pursue. But how do I get there? There are prerequisites. Prerequisite number one, I must acknowledge, I must accept, and I must believe that God is the creator. I reject him as creator. There's no fear. Boom. That's just a fact. Number two, I must accept, I must acknowledge, I must believe that God is absolutely sovereign over the counsel and devices of people, whatever people want to do or try to do, God is sovereign over it, right? We have to see it, So we have to acknowledge, accept, believe he is created. We have, must accept, acknowledge that he, and uh, and believe that he is sovereign. And number three, we must accept, acknowledge, and believe the supremacy of God's counsel, of God's thoughts. They, they, no one can stop them. No one can withhold him. No one can thwart them. Number four, if we're truly going to fear God, we have to accept, we have to acknowledge, we have to acknowledge, we have to believe in God's sovereign, or I will say this, divine election. I believe of Israel and of us for salvation. We have to accept, acknowledge, and believe in divine election because that completely destroys anything about us. We have to reverence and respect that. Look, you you realize there is no greater power when you realize that without God, you could, you could not be saved. God had to save you completely through his electing. You didn't do it. You didn't make the choice. That shows you how humble you should be and how you should reverence and respect him. And then next, oh, I think we're about to stumble onto something that I think is really good. Are, are you ready? Okay. We have to then see his omniscience. Remember, verse 13, 14, and 15, right? The Lord looketh from heaven, he beholdeth all the sons of men. From the uh, the, uh, place, I think I said palace, from the place of his habitation, he looketh upon all the inhabitants of the earth. He fashioned their hearts alike. He considereth all their works. We have to see that God is omniscient, omniscience. He sees everything. He beholds everything. And when we see it, when we are confronted and we acknowledge and accept and believe in a God who is all knowing and never learns anything, then we see how much we don't know. And then we reverence and respect and we stand in awe of him. All right. Next. This is the one we, I think we're going to stumble into. I think it's important. If you look at 16, 17, and 18, or 16 and 17. There is no king saved by the multitude of an host. A mighty man is not delivered by much strength. A horse is a vain thing for safety. Neither shall he deliver any by his great strength. When you read that, your immediate reaction is, well, wait a minute. Human beings have accomplished this and rescued this and defeated this and destroyed this empire and conquered this nation and did this and enslaved these people and did all of these things. But what this passage is saying, no, 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 no. Man alone They are weak and incapable of anything. Anything they accomplish is because of God's power. So is the next prerequisite to truly fear God is an acceptance, an acknowledgement, and a belief in our weakness and our inability. We must be confronted that without God, Men can't accomplish anything without God. We cannot accomplish. It doesn't matter how many horses. Doesn't matter how many uh, how many people we have in our armies. Doesn't. We can't accomplish anything without God. We read again from Matthew Henry. All right, this is very important. All the powers of the creature depend upon God and are of no account, of no avail at all without Him. We believe we can do it. I can do it. We can do it. I can do it. But we can't do anything. God is the one who accomplished it through us, whatever his purpose is. This is literally taking, it doesn't matter, just look at anyone on the earth. Whatever they do, it's not, they do it somehow because God allows it. God God is somehow working in it. It's beyond our comprehension. Now, this raises serious, serious, serious questions, right? Because if God, if everything ultimately God is given credit for, because He's the one working in it, well, then why doesn't He just work in us to be perfect? And I mean, we we could, There's so many questions we have here. I understand. I got I got major issues here, but this seems to be clearly saying, hey, you, because I mean, on one hand, we look at what the, people throughout history have done, right? Wars, victories, empires, great. Discoveries, great inventions, great accomplishments. But this is saying, no, 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 no. I mean, read those words again. This is this is so profound. This is so profound. Read it again. Um he, uh, verse 16. There is no king saved by the multitude of an host. Are you telling me no king has ever been saved by a multitude or by an army? That doesn't make any sense. A mighty man is not delivered by much strength. Are you telling me a mighty man has never been delivered by strength? Uh, a, a horse is vain thing for safety. Neither shall he deliver any by his great strength. Wait a minute. That, that doesn't make any sense. What it is saying is people do these things, but the only reason they do them is because God has sovereignly chosen for it to work this way. God is the one involved. God. Now, this raises serious questions, serious, troubling philosophical questions that I don't have the answer to. Well, why would God... Allow them to do that because what they did was horrible and evil. I don't have the answer to that. This places everything right at the at the doorstep of God. It places everything at his feet. I'm going to read Barnes notes of the Bible. There is no king save by the multitude of a host, by the number of his armies. His safety, however numerous and mighty may, uh, uh, may be his forces, is in God alone. He is a great protector, whatever means men may use to defend themselves. The most numerous and the best organized armies cannot secure a victory. It is, after all, wholly in the hands of God. A wasting sickness in a camp may defeat all the plans of war or success in battle may depend on contingencies with no commander could anticipate or provide against. So basically is saying that, that whatever men, what, God is the one at work. Oh, I, I mean, this melts my brain. There's so many negative philosophical implications from this. But to truly fear God, we must accept, we must acknowledge and believe that he is creator. We must accept and acknowledge and believe that he is completely sovereign over the counsel and devices of man. We must accept and acknowledge and believe that, his, that God's counsel, his thoughts, are supreme. No one can withhold them, stop them, or thwart them. We must accept, we must acknowledge, and we must believe in God's divine election of Israel and of us for salvation. If we're going to fear God, we must accept, acknowledge, and believe that he is omniscient. We must believe in divine omniscience. We must. And then we must accept, acknowledge, and believe in our weakness and limitations, and we can do nothing without God. Now, verse 18. Behold, the eye of the Lord is upon them that fear him, upon them that hope in his mercy to deliver their soul from death and to keep them alive in famine. Our soul waiteth for the Lord. He is our help and our shield for our heart shall rejoice in him because we have trusted in his holy name. Let the mercy, O Lord, be upon us according as we hope in thee. This seems to indicate, and this raises serious questions. I think primarily it's focused on Israel. That's the context here. God, because of his omniscience, he already beholds everything. This is him. Somehow when we fear God, he's beholding us. This is in some kind of a special way, right? In other words, when we behold him, it places us in a, Different relationship with him? I I don't, what do you want to do with the rest of the chapter? I'm at 57 minutes. I will let you determine what to do with the rest of the chapter. It's obviously a complete contrast, right? It's a complete contrast. Hey, the kings, they can't, they're not saved by a multitude of hosts. They're not, a mighty man is not delivered by strength. A horse is a vain thing. Um, no no one, I mean, it, it's going after the, the inability of man. They're incapable. But then it, in contrast, those who fear God, his eyes are upon them. And then look what it says. To deliver their soul from death and to keep them alive in famine. Our soul waited for the Lord. I, I, you know what I think this is? This is what I think is happening here. When we fear God, we acknowledge that God is at work in everything and that God will be the one who will like if 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 anything good happens, it's going to be because of God. If anything bad happens, it's going to be because of God. In other words, those who fear God are aware of God's work and prep. we we are aware that hey, God is the one sovereign. God is the one who is supreme. God is the one who elected. Without without God, we can do nothing. God is the one at work in everyone. I think those who fear God perceives everything different. Now, I know that's not a dramatic conclusion. It kind of leaves us a little bit like struggling with what to do with these verses, right? But please note verse 20, our soul waiteth for the Lord. He is our hope, our help and our shield for our heart shall rejoice in him because we have trusted in his holy name. Let thy mercy, O Lord, be upon us according as we have hope in thee. When you fear God, you have a God conscience, a God consciousness. You are conscious and aware of God. You perceive God in everything. I could flesh that out a little bit more but I'll leave it for you to struggle with. So in conclusion Psalm 33 gives us this great idea wouldn't it be wonderful basically if the whole world feared God and everyone stood in awe of him That sounds great but what what's required for people to fear God Number 1 we must accept acknowledge and believe he is the creator He created Number 2 We must accept, we must acknowledge, and we must believe in his sovereignty, right? He is sovereign over the counsel and the devices of man. Number three, we must accept, we must acknowledge, and we must believe in the supremacy of God's thoughts, of God's counsel. No one can withhold it or thwart it. They will stand forever. They will endure forever. Next, we must If we're going to fear God, a prerequisite, we must accept, acknowledge, and believe God's divine election of Israel and his divine election of us. That will lead us to reverence, respect, and awe him, uh, being on him. Next, if we're going to fear God properly, we must accept, acknowledge, and believe in God's omniscience, that he is omniscient. He knows everything, and he has. Next, if we're going to fear God properly, we must accept, we must acknowledge, we must believe in the reality of our weakness and inability and that nothing happens apart from God or that anything happening apart from God is weak and useless. And then the last part, I think, really kind of demonstrates the thinking of someone who actually fears God. I do realize this leads to some serious philosophical questions that I don't have good answers to. Contact me, newsif at yahoo.com, newsif at yahoo.com. That's newsif at yahoo.com, newsif at yahoo.com. I think that was a good hour of study. I said I needed a success in a home run. I don't know if I hit a home run. Come on. I think that's at least a double or a triple, right? I mean, come on, right? Okay, right. I I mean, that had to be at least worth a touchdown, right? At least one goal, right? I I mean, whatever sports metaphor I can come up with, right? That had to be at least one basket, right? All right. I'm going to say it was okay, but I would love your feedback. Newsif at yahoo.com. Newsif at yahoo.com. It's now 6.24 p.m. Central Time here in West Texas. Saturday is fast coming to an end, and that will end this week's Bible study on Psalm 33 and the subject of fear. But it won't, I mean, I'm saying, it will end our study on Psalm 33. It will not end our study on the subject of fear. We have six more weeks to go. We'll have a new passage of Scripture tomorrow, a new focus. Don't forget your six questions for the thematic method. Keep working on that. Don't forget to look at the curriculum on Psalm 33. It's there. And if you're new to all of this, you want to be a part of the Bible study exercise, email me newsif at yahoo.com, newsif at yahoo.com. I can send you a link to the curriculum, get you all set up there, The uh, and just listen to the episodes, do the homework, and you can email me and send me your homework, your questions, your, your struggles, your observations, newsif at yahoo.com. And for everyone else, I, I hope to hear from you. And I hope this, I, I, I wish Look, if, if Psalm 33 has had an impact on anyone else this week, let me know because I, man, I don't know how, I don't know how everyone hasn't been talking about it this week. I really don't know. I mean, the chapter is absolutely fascinating to me, but okay. I I almost want to go to church tomorrow and preach it again because I'm just that like someone, I, I want someone to go, yes, it's a great chapter. Okay. All right, I'll stop right there. Newsif at yahoo.com. We'll possibly do another live broadcast tonight. We will see. All right, thanks for listening. God bless.